From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. The main slate for the 55th New York Film Festival has been announced, with new films from Richard Linklater, Woody Allen, Todd Haynes, Agnes Varda, Claire Denis, and many more. Tickets go on sale September 10th. If you become a member by August 16th, you can get discounts and early ticket access. For more information, check out filmlink.org NYFF. On this week's special from the Archives edition of our podcast, we're looking back to the 49th New York Film Festival in 2011, when we welcomed legendary new German cinema director Wim Wenders for the premiere of his 3D dance documentary, Pina. In a wide-ranging discussion with former Film Society programmer Scott Foundus, the director discussed working in the United States, dealing with commercial failure, embracing new technology, and much more. Let's go now to their conversation. I'll just say a quick thank you to HBO Films for their generous sponsorship of this program uh, before we get started here. Uh, I assume some of you, if not all of you, had a chance to see Pina last night, a remarkable film. And um, although although, uh, I guess in some ways one one could say that that Pina, you know, we could make a classification of it as a road movie because you do get out and about in it a bit, but uh, I, I... as as I have the as I have <laughs> one of the great uh, makers of road movies here, I, I I thought we could kind of think of this talk as a little bit of a of a roadmap through your through your work through your life and career leading up to this point. Of course, we only have an hour, so we won't be able to make every stop along the way. But I did want to start uh, by asking you a little bit about how you came to filmmaking, because I know that you had some some sort of alternate lives along the way, including working as a film critic, as an engraver, studying philosophy. Uh, even though you had made films very young, it seems to have taken you a while to sort of come around to it as a as a career. Well, I made Super 8 movies when I was a kid, yeah. And I was a projectionist at the age of six. <laughs> <laughs> I had inherited my father's 9.5mm film projector and it had miraculously survived the war in the basement and together with a little box of about a dozen tiny little film spools, one two minute reels and all sorts of stuff, silent stuff, Laurel and Hardy and and Buster Keaton, tiny little movies, just one scenes, and and it was that was the time before television in Germany, and I was very popular among all my friends because I was the only one able to project movies. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody had ever seen any before, and I could do them backwards, which was of course the greatest attraction because nobody had ever seen food come out of people's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> so I showed these twelve movies about a hundred times. That was my beginning, and then I forgot about movies, and I did o- everything that you quoted, and in the and ended up at the age of twenty-one or twenty-two in Paris, determined to become a painter, and that's where you have to go when you want to be a painter, and you're very young, you need to be in Paris. I figured, but 
It turned out that I got totally sidetracked in Paris by the Cinematheque. And they were the only warm place I could afford. The movie costed the equivalent of 25 cents. And if you stayed in between the shows on the toilet, you could, with 25 cents, see five movies. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw about a thousand films in a row, a crash course of the history of cinema, and that was it. What were, what were some of the films that you saw during that time that really uh, made an impression on you? The most important thing, well, there was a Fritz Lang retrospective, and I had never seen these films he had made in Germany, because in Germany, when I grew up, there was nothing like that. But the, 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 the key thing was a retrospective by Anthony Mann, and I saw each and every film made by Anthony Mann, and it is studying these films and watching these films that I realized that there were authors behind the movie and that it was a language and that you could actually that you could understand how movies are made. I saw that and understood that in the Westerns by Anthony Mann, and that was a key experience for me. Did you also have a chance to see Ozu in the cinema? Type? No, none. That came much, much later. That came 10 years later. And um, in terms of the, the formation of your, your own sort of aesthetic sensibility as a filmmaker, uh, it, it seems remarkably fully formed in a way already in your, in your student feature, uh, Summer in the City. Uh, and, and I'm curious if you can talk particularly about the, the sort of the sense of time in your films. And, and in Summer in the City, you know, we have a real sense of, of sort of seeing entire events happen uh, in real time. And there's a, there's a kind of a, a hypnotic quality to it, a meditative quality. Well, you can call it that from today's perspective, a meditative quality. The truth was I didn't know how to say cut. <laughs> <laughs> I <laughs> I felt once the camera was running that was some something holy was happening and that and you couldn't just possibly stop it and and the actors sometimes knew what they were doing and they had a little dialogue and they had a little scene but when that was over I thought the most exciting thing was beginning because then what they were doing then that really counted for me because that was life and sometimes they just went on until the film ran out. And that's why the film became so long. <laughs> it was two and a half hours long. I just didn't, I just couldn't cut. I couldn't possibly interrupt something that could go on and show me something that I didn't know and hadn't foreseen. And so the film is partly written, partly improvisational, and has some very long, long takes, that unending takes. Whatever was in the camera, I had to run out, and then the scene was over. So, you call it meditative, now I, I call it clumsiness. <laughs> but I think that even in many later films of yours, there's, there's a sense of a kind of a, an, exp an expansive sense of time, of letting, letting the camera linger, letting, letting yeah. a lot happen before we cut, before we move on to the next thing. Yeah, I always... I mean, I always felt th the unforeseen was the most exciting thing. And uh, and I encouraged my actors to continue and not wait for me to say cut. But And we made entire fictional movies without a script, Kings of the Road or Alice in the Cities. After the first week, nobody looked into the script anymore, and we just went from day to day. So 
And I felt much more comfortable than having to fulfill something that was written before, that I conceived before in the typewriter. When the camera was rolling, it was so exciting that it had not been conceived before. So that is a something that has been more or less present in all my filmmaking, the encouraging the actors to find something on their own, in a scene or after a scene or through the scene that we could not possibly write. But then, of course, I also learned to make movies that were strictly written and built before. But I always figured the documentary aspect in fiction but the very fact that there were clouds moving and birds flying through the shot and cars, cars moving that you didn't have any control of. So things happened and the sun came out in the middle of the shot and or the, it went away. I always thought this was as important as the so-called plot. So I always liked the, you call it documentary elements of any shoot. I mean, every shoot has a certain, unless you're just in front of a green screen and, and stuff, but if you're outdoors and if you shoot any fictional scene, there's always a certain amount of life coming into it that you can't control, and I was always much attracted by that. Um, can you uh, take us a little bit through your, your uh, I don't know if it parallels exactly your discovery of cinema, but your discovery of uh, American and British pop music, which um, Certainly plays a role from pretty early on in your in your film career, and I and I think uh, you know often the the soundtracks of your films uh, are you know sort of striking on on the audience as the as the images and, and the dialogue, and they they play a bigger role I think than they do in a, in a lot of films. Yeah, this first film, "Some in the City," was already called after "Loving Spoonful" song. We shot the whole film in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Really, uh, the whole film was shot in November, in two weeks in November. But Summer in the City had such a great sound. And in the winter, you dream of the summer. So the film's, the whole film is dreaming itself somewhere anyway. And and then the film was dedicated to the kings. That's mm -hmm. what it says. Under, and there's lots of songs by the kings in the film. And that's why the film is basically not available anymore, because I put everything in I liked. There's Elvis and Chuck Berry and... There's a track by the Rolling Stones. So impossible to release the movie because they, they never told us in film school that we had to acquire the rights to something. <laughs> 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 so I just used all the music I liked. And I wonder how you get to know the film. I have a bootleg. Ah. <laughs> Anyone in the audience can come up to me afterwards. Yeah, yes, you can because it's address. <laughs> because not only bootleg is illegal, but the movie is illegal in, a, in itself. <laughs> We tried at some point to, to make an effort to see whether we could do something with a bit, but I only had the finished mix, the tracks were gone, so it's impossible to take any other music out. And, and it was, we started and realized it was completely useless to acquire all the music that is in some in the city would have cost it about a hundred times as much as the film itself. Do songs sometimes give you ideas for stories or for images? Oh yeah, a lot. And your question about the American and English music, I mean, blues especially, and what the these kids that all were my age 
did with this with this country blues by electrifying it and by starting their bands called the Kings or the Pretty Things or Them or mm -hmm. Rolling Stones or whatever they called these bands. And it was all based on the kind of music I liked, but now it was so much more exciting because these were guys my age who who did it. And the fact that I eventually went to Paris because I, th I thought I'm, I'm going to be a painter, it needed some courage, and the courage I got from that music because these kids made their bands and made their way, and I figured I had the right to do something as well. And I owe a lot to rock and roll in the course of my filmmaking career, in, a, in inspiration, yes. Alice in the City started with a song by Chuck Berry, Memphis, Tennessee, which is a story about a little girl. Um, the, your, the, the professional films that you made after Summer in the City coincided with uh, what is referred to as the, the new German cinema, or German new wave, uh, including, of course, Fassbender and Herzog. Um, when, you were, when you were making those films inside Germany, did you have this sense of a, a sort of renaissance moment, and how close were you to your contemporaries at that time, and how much of a, of a sharing of ideas or a sensibility do you feel that there, there was at that moment? There was not much sharing of sensibility. Um, we knew each other quite well, and we all started at about the same time, in the late 60s, early 70s. And we all very soon realized that filmmaking was difficult, and we didn't have much support. There was no industry that wanted us or acknowledged us. And we came from all sorts of backgrounds. I mean, not social backgrounds, but but film backgrounds, like Fassbinder was into melodramas, and he liked the movies when Douglas Sirk a lot. Fassbinder was, and that was Werner Werner. Herzog owed a lot to German Expressionism and and uh, Murnau and and to himself, after all. <laughs> I was very much influenced by American cinema. And uh, so we all had our own self-made movie backgrounds and our own idea of cinema. And all came upon the same obstacle that nobody wanted us and that even if we succeeded in making a movie, nobody would distribute it. Because Germany at the time, in terms of movies, was a total wasteland. And uh, there was no independent distribution whatsoever. And all the distributors basically only showed either American movies or sort of hor horrifying um, German westerns <laughs> <laughs> shot in Yugoslavia <laughs> or soft porn or something. But nobody really needed us. So. The fact that something like the new German cinema began and started is a quite amazing act of solidarity because we realized we everybody has its own had its own boat, but we were in one big boat together, and that was sort of a economic necessity to 
to stick together in order for each of these little boats to be able to float. So we formed our own production and then distribution company and everybody was in it and it went it worked for 10 years. And we all became who we became because of this act of solidarity, which didn't mean that stylistically or in terms of sensitivity, as you said, we had all that much in common, which dif s certainly differentiated us, let's say, from the Nouvelle Vague in France or the neorealism or other sort of waves that had been before, where there was more of a of a context together. We didn't have much context together, and the invention, new the term New German Cinema was imposed by American critics. We were happy because finally we had, we had something <laughs> we could call ourselves. Um, <coughs> can you talk a little bit about your collaboration in those years, and, and also after those years, but uh, uh, with the, the Austrian writer Peter Handke, uh, particularly on uh, Goli's anxiety and, and Wrong Move, which you know to me are two of your great films from that period. Peter is a couple of years older than me, and we got to know each other when I just left school, high school. I got to know him at one of the first performances of his stage plays in Germany and was involved in a discussion with him. And we met a little bit later in Dusseldorf where he lived at the time and went to see movies together and became friends. And when I left film school with Summer in the City as my, as my final film of film school, Peter had just written so a book that had become sort of a bestseller in Germany, The Goalie's Anxiety at the Penalty Kick. And he saw me, I mean, just finished film school and really without a chance to make a movie whatsoever. And none of my f colleagues from film school made a movie for years. And because still the economy wasn't there. And, and Peter said, well, this book of mine had just worked so well. If you want to make a movie from it, take it. I mean, he gave it to me, with including the rights to make a movie. And that, so I was the only one in my class of 18 who, a year later after finishing film school, actually made a movie, The Goalie's Anxiety at a Penalty Kick. And the f thing that brought me to New York for the very first time, I was at the new director's season in 71, with my what I considered first film, Some in the City, was a student film. It was a long student film, but The Goalies Anxiety was my first film, and that brought me to New York. And I owe that completely to Peter. He wasn't much involved with it. He sort of told me where, where he had gone when he wrote the, f the, the book and which landscapes and places he had visited and then occurred in the film. So I chose those places, but he kept out of the script and only saw the finished film. And, but I owe him my first film, and a couple of years later, a few years later, we made another film together where he actually wrote the script, and that was Wrong Move. And a few years later, I produced his second film. He, he did three films as a director. I produced Left-Handed Women, which was a fantastic movie. I liked it a lot, but it's not really available anymore. So we worked together for a long time over the years, and he worked on Wings of Desire. Mm -hmm. So that's a, he's sort of my oldest friend. We know each other for 
more than 40 years. Uh, tell me about coming to New York for the first time. Was that also your first time in the United States? I had visited the United States countless times in movies. <laughs> <laughs> I felt I knew it, but of course, once I came to New York, I realized I didn't know shit. <laughs> I remember I got a cold because it was the new director season was I think in January or February or something. It was early in the year. And of course I walked through New York all day long and I always looked up in the air and I stepped into every puddle and every dog shit. <laughs> because I just had to look up all the time. It was a fantastic experience. And I, the first three times I came to America I never left New York. And only then afterwards I started to travel and realized the rest of the country was pretty different. And uh, talk a little bit about coming to America to work. Um, in um, in uh, 1982, two films were released, uh, made by you, very, very different films, but both made in America, uh, Hammett and the, the State of Things. And uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, working in America and uh, the sort of uh, diametrically opposed um, projects that you that you did here when you first came? Well, one film preceded it. That was Alice in the Cities, where we shot at least the beginning in yeah. America. That was in the early 70s. And then I, I came in early 78 invite on invitation by Francis Ford Coppola and his Zoetrope Studios to work on a film called Hammett after, based on the real character of Dashiell Hammett, but on a fictional book. And of course, I mean, I was young, that was, I was 33 years old, and being invited to make a film in America, of course, was too good to be true, and of course I came, and it was a long, <laughs> amazing experience, to give it this friendly title. We worked for four years on the film, and went through four different writers and altogether 40 versions of a script and shot the film twice. <laughs> Once we shot it on location that was between 79 uh, uh, in 79 and then we never shot, finished that shoot because Francis had his mind on apocalypse and stuff so I really made the film a little bit under the radar and then they and then it came to the last week of shooting and I had to shoot only the big final scene and they realized n the scene was rewritten and it was not anymore like it had been in the script. Actually it had not much to do anymore with the script and there were characters they didn't even know. <laughs> <laughs> and they looked at it and said, what are you shooting here? I said, yeah, well that's the necessary ending for the film I've been making so far. And then I said, stop, stop it, stop it, stop it. And Francis suggested that I stop the shoot and edit the film, and then he would be able to understand my ending. And I didn't have a choice anyway. So that's what we did, and when I edited the film, half a year later, nobody liked it. At least the studio didn't like it. Francis sort of liked it, but I said, but he said, well, the studio thinks it's way too much 
It went to lyrical, and it's about the writer and not the detective story that we had given you. It was sort of a fictional story because Hammond was a real Pinkerton detective. Mm -hmm. And the fictional story was when he was still a detective but was already starting to write, and the writing sort of, or the, the real detective work went into the writing, and the writing sort of overlaid the real detective work. So it was a an interesting project, but they felt it had it was too much about the writer and not enough action, and too slow. So they figured they should rewrite the ending. And then the the last writer came out and he rewrote the ending and he liked his ending very much and Francis liked it, but in order to make it work, he had to write more scenes in the front of the film to establish his ending, and he ended up writing a whole new story. And then Francis liked the story, and we decided to start shooting from this beginning again. <laughs> and by then, all, none of the actors was left. And the, when we started to shoot the film one more time, two years later, from scratch, there was only the lead actor and me who were left. <laughs> and 10% of my initial shoot made it because there was some establishing shots in San Francisco and some white shots. and. And the rest of the film, the second shoot was all done on studio. So 10% of the f of the initial film made it. And there was great stuff in there. The, I mean, some amazing actors played their last part in there. Sydney, Sylvia Sidney, that was the last role. She's no longer in the film. Woody Strode, who, who you might know from many John Ford movies, played his last character. It's no longer in the film. None of it is in the film. Sam Fuller played a big part, not in the film. So all of these were cut out, and we started again, and that was a long process, as you can imagine, to make a film twice. <laughs> I don't think it happened too often in, in the film history. <laughs> and and, and was, the other film was, was that a kind of reaction, in a way, was the state of things? The other thing was a movie I made in between when I was laid off, because I couldn't, when we finally had a new script, I couldn't shoot it because my lead actor, Fred Forrest, he was fat by then. <laughs> he had been a skinny man for the shoot, and as we wanted to keep a few shots, we had to wait until he was skinny again because he had been in France as one from the heart, and for some reason he had to gain weight. So when we wanted to start the film again, I looked at an actor who was twice the weight than before. So we realized we had to lay off. So. I was laid off for a few months, and I made another movie in between. And that was State of Things, which is very much a film about filmmaking in, as such, and very much a film about the differences in a European and American approach. And in the end, both the director and the producer die. <laughs> <laughs> and somewhere in there, you, you also made what I think is a very beautiful um, but tough at the same time a film about uh, Nicholas Ray near the end of his life uh, trying to finish a film another movie about movie making and uh, you mentioned before your discovery of Anthony Mann at the uh, Cinémathèque Française uh, uh, can you uh, talk a little bit about your your discovery and and then your friendship with Nicholas Ray and and maybe also mention Sam Fuller two other great uh, B movie directors who you who you used to several times in your in your work in the movie The American Friend, which also played here at the New York Film Festival, there's a part played by Sam Fuller and a part pl played by Nicholas Ray. They both appear in the film. Uh, 
and I became good friends with both of them and especially the part of that Nick played was very interesting. He played a character from another book by Patricia Highsmith. American Friend is based on Ripley's Game, novel by Patricia Highsmith. And, and I inserted another character from another novel, and that was the painter, Derwatt, was his name, a painter who was supposed to be dead, was, was still alive because his painting sold much better after his death. So he hadn't really died, but he continued working once he was dead, so to speak. And, and Dennis Hopper was his agent. Dennis sold his, sold the paintings of a dead painter with high profits. And uh, so we, I got, I became very good friends with Nicholas and and on behalf of American Friend, I was invited by Francis to come to America. So while we were preparing Hammett, Nicholas Ray called me and we met in between and called me and said, I'm, I'm diagnosed with terminal cancer and the one thing I'd really like to do is make another movie. And we developed this film that became Lightning Over Water basically overnight and started shooting two weeks later. And tried to make a fictional film out of a situation that was very real and that was taking over more or less our efforts to fictionalize it and the film then became a film about Nick's death, which was something he wanted because his his main desire was to correct the image he had in the American public as the drunk director who was kicked out of Hollywood. And. I think he very courageously and really with an incredible effort really showed a different Nicholas Ray to one. I can't say to the American public because the film wasn't widely seen, but I think it fulfilled what Nicholas had in mind. And it became a film that was really, in the end, totally a documentary because all our efforts to fictionalize it disappeared slowly more and more, and then it was just a film dictated by cancer. I, I want to ask you about another uh, collaboration with a, a writer who's played an important role in your uh, career, which is uh, Sam Shepard. And uh, I think perhaps the, uh, for me, and maybe for some other people here, the, the greatest of your uh, American films that uh, grew out of that collaboration, Paris, Texas, and uh, <laughs> some fans there. Somebody saw it. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly coming out of this, what sounds like a fairly traumatic experience, making, making Hammett over all those years and remaking it. Uh, uh, can you talk a little bit about the genesis of, of Paris, Texas, and was that in some ways kind of a a liberating experience because it seems uh, unlike Hamlet, uh, unlike Hamlet, to really be a film made to be uh, or not to be yes. uh, on your <laughs> it's a Freudian slip, um, a but film made on your own terms. Yeah. Well, the genesis of Paris is very much related to Hamlet because my dream actor to play Hamlet was Sam Shepard, and I met him in San Francisco because most of his plays at the time premiered in San Francisco he, and he directed them himself. And we always met at the same bookstore. <coughs> and actually we shot for one day with Gene Hackman as the old detective and 
Sam as Hammett, and that was fantastic. I mean, it, it was mind-blowing. Sam was looking so much like the actual, he was skinny and, and tall. He looked so much like the actual Dashiell Hammett, it was uncanny. <coughs> And the two of them made a fantastic. We shot several scenes with Gene and, and Sam, and, and I was convinced this was it. I couldn't possibly find a be better actor. On top of everything, Sam could type. <laughs> and all of the other guys I tested, they could not for the heck of it write a single word on the typewriter. And I ended up having to make close-ups with my own hands because none <laughs> of the actors, and also Frederick Forrest, couldn't type. I mean, he couldn't even type his own name. <laughs> but Sam was a fantastic typer and, and looked the part and was really very good. And I showed it to the studio and I said, Niet, no, this guy has never made a movie. He's a writer. You're supposed to make a movie about a writer, but with an actor. So they completely forbid me to, to use Sam. And I fought very hard for Sam. And in the end, it was either you take an actor or you're not making the movie. But Sam's sweet revenge was that when Hammett came out, it was overshadowed by a, a film that Terrence Malick had made where Sam was fantastic and Sam's poster hanging in every teenager's room in America because he really stole the show to, to Richard Gere in Gates of Heaven. And, he, and the studio really regretted that yet that I couldn't use, <laughs> because he was really, and then he he did, well, I'm not going to go into but Sam was happening when the, when finally Hammond came out. And, and then I had, when I had shot the film, I wanted to score it with Ray Cooter. Mm -hmm. And we had beautiful ideas, Ray and I, about sort of an urban blues that we wanted to score the film with. And again, the studio said, yet, you're supposed to sh present as a composer, not a guitar player. It's interesting that the studio kept answering in German. In the, in the, uh well, that was Russian. <laughs> Russian, sorry. <laughs> no, no, they said no, of course. They said no, 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 no. We don't want a writer to play a writer, and we don't want a guitar player to make the score. And so, and, and Paris, Texas came, really came out of the di desire to work with Sam, as a writer and as an actor, that's another story. He didn't act, the bastard. Because <laughs> he was supposed to play the part, and then he fell in love with Jessica Lange and was gone. I had to find another actor. Anyway, he wrote the story. And of course, Ray Kuda scored it. And, and I already I had tried to bring Robbie Miller to, show, to shoot Hammond. So all of the key, key personnel in Paris, Texas, were not allowed and could not work on Hammett, and so finally we made the film. I finally made the film in America that I'd come to do in the first place. And Paris, Texas allowed me to go home because I couldn't go back empty-handed, sort of, mm -hmm. as a failure, because I looked at Hammett as a failure, and Lightning Over Water was a whole different story. That was not, that was not an American movie, anyway. And I, I think, I don't know if, if, if you, having made it, you know, can have this perspective on it, but it seems to me that, that maybe Paris, Texas is a film that could have only been made by a foreigner in America, that somehow the, 
the eye that the film has on the American landscape. It sees things in a kind of detail that uh, that maybe we take for granted when we are yeah. Americans. Exactly, that's what the American critics wrote. This is a European look at our own country and we don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> the film got the worst reviews. You can reread them if you want it. <laughs> and, and uh, well, anyway, it was very much a, a European look at America, that's for sure. And ev even if a, an American had written it, it was written by somebody who knew the West really well. Sam, that's really his mythical country, the American West. And, and it was not exactly an, an American movie. It was an un unknown kind of movie at the time. It was also not a German movie. And it was, in a strange way, I don't know. It was definitely it had a European texture. But in a strange way, it was at the beginning of something that later became independent cinema. Because also the way we shot Paris, Texas was completely out of the ordinary. And that sort of guerrilla filmmaking was totally unknown in America at the time. I mean, some of the studio guys had made film, films under the radar, and Nick had made some of some films, and, and Sam Fuller as well. But when we made Paris, Texas, to shoot with a non-union crew with some people who by any, if immigration would have found out about us, half of my crew ha would have had to go home. They were here on tourist visa. And it was made for a budget that nobody at the time believed, $2 million. And it was a kind of filmmaking that did not really exist at the time. And I think started something as, not as a movie, but as an approach to filmmaking in America. So it's a strange mixture of a Sort of a guerrilla independent filmmaking. Which which role was uh, Sam Shepard to have played? That Sam was. Sam and I wrote the script, and I always took it for granted he was, he was going to play this damn Travis character. Mm. So I never asked him. I took it for granted he was going to play the character. <laughs> and when I finally asked him, it was too late because he had fallen in love with Jessica and was going to make a movie called North. Far North. Far North, exactly. And it was no longer available to be in my movie. Now, uh, even though you, you didn't make it for quite some years after Paris, Texas, you were already talking about, in interviews around that time, uh, a film uh, that I think is, is one of, if not your most ambitious films, uh, uh, a film that has never been properly seen in its uh, proper version, which is uh, Until the End of the World, um, uh, a kind of, uh, I think in your own words, ultimate road movie, a movie shot all over the world, uh, a kind of uh, end of the end of the millennium story, um, and uh, very much uh, on the on the cutting edge technologically. Uh, can you uh, take us a little bit through the uh, inspiration of that project and its own sort of um, sideways and curving path to the big screen? We have an actor here who's in the film, Tom, and was in Lightning Over Water, that's Tom Farrell. He played also a part in Paris, Texas. We're talking about Tom, about you all the time, Tom. 
Well, the end of the world was, of course, a very ambitious project because it was to be shot on a tour once around the globe. And the basic idea behind it was an old dream of mine since I was a little boy. My favorite person for years and years was my aunt, and she was blind. And I always already as a kid thought about what, how would it be if she could see now? And why doesn't anybody come up with an idea to make the blind people see? And so finally the film is based upon, it's a science fiction film. <laughs> well, by now it's no longer science fiction film because it was it was it it played at the turn of the millennium in 1999 going to 2000, and I wrote the thing in 78 and in, in the Australian desert and I was interrupted by this offer Francis Ford Coppola come to 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 come to make a movie called Hammett, and I thought, well, I'm going to do this Hammett thing in one year, and then I go back to Australia and work on uh, until the end of the work, and, it and then it became a four or five year interruption. And I basically finally went back to it, to the idea of a journey around the world to collect images for a blind person. So this person who is the mother of the hero of the film could see all the places where she lived in her life and could see her family. And the father was this crazy inventor, he's played this crazy inventor who had developed this technology to introduce images to the vis visual cortex of a blind person. And the process of the film was that Sam, he was called, who was collecting these images all over the world, had to record both what he was seeing in these special sessions when he was recording something. He was recording what he was seeing, like a videotape, but he was also recording the activity of his brain, and then in the secret laboratory of his father, deep in Australia, with the help of the brain information and the actual image, it was induced into his mother's brain, and she actually saw places from her life and her daughter and her family and dies of it because it was too much for her. And only now, like a few weeks ago, friends, I think Tom, you sent this to me, this link to some to some American newspapers where there were scientists, I think in the West Coast, who had succeeded to introduce electronically images to the brain without people seeing them, just to the brain. And it was exactly the same process that we had used as science fiction in 1990. And even the images, and you could see the images, there was a little videotape, looked like the images in our movie. It is funky how science fiction can, <laughs> can sort of catch up with itself. It was sheer science fiction at the time, but it's possible today. You can, with, with your eyes closed, or even if you're blind, you can be made to see rudimentary images. Anyway, that was the, what was the movie was about. It was very ambitious, and when I, my editor and I worked at, on it for a year, and then we had a six-hour cut. Six. And we showed that to the distributors, and they all fell apart and said, no way, Jose. <laughs> Look at your contract. It, it says two and a half hours. I said, well, I give you six. 
and you can make it in two parts or three parts, and it's easy to make it in three parts, and you get so much more for the same money. And I said, no, no, no. Two and a half hours. So we had to cut down the film, uh, the epic story of this journey around the world from six to two and a half. And that, of course, was murder, and the film that then came out w over the world in my book was just the Reader's Digest. And a year later, the editor and I reconstituted our, well, five and a half hour version, and, and that was then never released. Only in Germany, where I had the rights myself, and in Italy. The rest of the country, I never had the rights to, sh to actually release it. Although we should say people can see it on DVD now, and it's it's really well yes, worth seeing. Uh, yes, it's seeing. the German version. You can get it on Amazon, and you take out the subtitles because it was all shot in English, and you have it. Uh, I mean, I hate to seem like uh, you know by talking so much about Hammett and until the end of the world, you know, that I'm focusing on these these troubled projects. But in a way, I think it's it's. I made a lot of those. Many many filmmakers <laughs> would not be able to move on uh, from things like this, and and it seems like you've always been you know just able to move on to the next project that there's been a, a, a real resilience and I, i'm just maybe you can elaborate a little bit on you know because we know so much about your great successes like paris texas and, uh, and wings of desire but what if, what it means as a filmmaker to have a project like this that fails commercially and or or critically or both and and how how you move on from that well i mean you don't you just don't have to fall into the trap that if people rave about a film, and then it's, then you're actually a genius. Because if you believe the good ones, you also have to believe the bad ones, and then you, every now and then you have to believe you're full of shit. <laughs> so I decided not to believe either one, and I didn't read the good ones, and I didn't read the bad ones, and I really like the film for what it is, and I loved Until the End of the World, and it, it's really one of the finest things in my own book that I've done in my life. It was a total failure. It was a total failure, but it was worth it. And, and sometimes those movies that didn't really make it are even closer to my heart than the ones like you quoted, Wings of Desire or Paris, Texas, that really made it, that mm -hmm. never needed me anymore afterwards. And <laughs> Some of these other kids, they're still clinging onto my <laughs> coat, and <laughs> they never grow up. But I like him better. Um, I, I want to um, uh, talk a little bit about your work in documentaries, uh, since Pina is here in the festival. And of course, a few years ago, you were nominated for the Oscar for Buena Vista Social Club, a wonderful film also, um, and obviously very much tied to your love of music and world music. But I actually want to go back uh, a little bit further to a documentary that you made called Room 666, uh, which is a series of interviews with uh, filmmakers, including uh, Fassbender and Spielberg and Godard, about uh, a kind of, a, at that time, which was, it was 1982, what, uh, what I think you felt was a sort of crisis moment in cinema where uh, a, a sort of television aesthetic was intruding on the, the big screen uh, experience of the past, and uh, th there's a there was a kind of um, you know I think a pessimistic uh, a tone to where cinema might be going at that point, and I I'm wondering, 
looking back now and you know I mean 30 years later um, do you do you still have those sorts of concerns I mean now when people are watching movies on uh, on uh, on iPhones and even smaller things uh, is that still a, a, a crisis in a way well at the time there was a feeling that cinema wasn't really able to reinvent itself with the first wave of video and and television aesthetics really are the aesthetics of commercials really taking over movies and it was I felt s sort of a dark time in cinema and and I made this documentary with all these directors about the future of cinema the possible future of cinema it's a strange little film because they all make their statements on completely on their own the only hotel room in Cannes, where we made the film the, during the Cannes festi Festival, the hotel, only hotel room available was this one room at the Martinez, room 666. Nobody wanted that. <laughs> 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 so we got it. And that's why the film is called Room 666. And we put a 60-millimeter camera, because that was the time before video, really. And in Nagra, and a seat and a question on the table and the directors went in with the help of the camera assistant sometimes who just made sure that they knew how to occup how to work the equipment and if they didn't he would work it with her and then they were on, on their own and they had one reel of film to answer the, the question and some of it knew some of them exactly knew how long a reel of film was Godard stood up 20 seconds before the film is rolling out and he's turning it off this, the moment when he hears the film is going. So he knew exactly how long one reel of 60 mil was. Other people w talked longer and <laughs> <they> <laughs> and I have the tape, what, what do you want to do with it? And other people said and were so appalled by the situation they didn't say anything. They let the film run out and didn't say a word which of course was a waste of film. And I only saw what saw the answers three weeks later when we had developed the film. It was a strange situation that I put them in and, and with some of them it worked and with others I felt I should have not done it. I should have stayed myself and asked the question, but some did, th did it in a way that was amazing. And it is a strange document of where cinema stood in the early 80s and compared to today, I mean, cinema did reinvent itself in the years afterwards and it came out of the hole and it really, the question seems so obsolete today. So if I were... And the only one who foresaw the future per correctly was Antonioni. He spoke of digital cinema and he spoke of a, f a future cinema that actually then happened. Have you, have you personally felt a sense of renewal in your own work? Because of course you, uh, I mean Pina is a film in 3D which seems like a movie that really can only properly be seen on the big screen, but you, you also made uh, to me a, a very lovely film on a digital video in Los Angeles called uh, Land of Plenty uh, with Michelle Williams uh, before she was a big star and uh, that in a way you've been uh, you know embracing these new technologies very much in your own work and and is, has a, and for you has that brought a, a sense of a new 
freedom and, and new aesthetic possibilities, uh, these new technologies? Well, you see, after the long experience with Hammett, I realized I was never going to be making a movie again where I wasn't in charge of the production and I, where I didn't know the budget and where I wasn't the producer myself. So, And that meant, of course, sometimes to not do office with multi-million budgets, but do movies that were costing less. Like Paris, Texas, that costed nothing, in, I mean, with $2 million at the time. And uh, I stuck to these guns that I've ever since only made movies that I could actually produce myself and that I could control. And with the arrival of digital cinema, that was, of course, very liberating because you were less dependent on on the entire sort of range of financing possibilities that you have as an independent director producer and uh, a film like land of plenty that costed a few hundred thousand dollars we still had an amazing story and but also an amazing freedom because more and more, ever since I'm making movies, which is now almost 40 years, more and more it is that the more money you have, the less you're able to do with it. So and if you have 100 million, you can't tell much with it. If you have 100,000, you, you can tell whatever you want. So it's a sort of a strange disproportion of the ambition you have and the money you have. So the more money you have, the less ambitious you can be. So, and of course, digital technology, as soon as it came up in the mid-90s, was very liberating. And I'm a sucker for these things. Already and until the end of the world, we worked on high definition when it didn't even exist. We shot all the dream sequences for the film on high def, on prototypes in Japan. Oh, and edited it on machines that had never been used before. And that was also a great discovery that you could produce dream imagery that was not based on film. Like Until then, all dream sequences in every movie in the end was film after all, and was shot with a grammar and the vocabulary of filmmaking. And dreams, I, th I thought, should look differently as well. I finally found these people in Japan who were developing digital tools in high def where you could produce dream sequences that didn't look like they were done on film. So I'm a, I really like technology, but strictly for the fact that it allows, us, allows you to do things that you couldn't do before and tell things you couldn't tell before and express yourself in ways that you couldn't express yourself before. Same with 3D now. I mean, for 20 years, really, I wanted to make this film with Pina, but felt that my tools weren't good enough. And that, well, what you can do with a camera in front of a stage performance, you can count it on one hand. You can put your camera on sticks. You can put your camera on a track. Put your camera on your shoulders. 
could use Steadicam or you could use a crane, and that's it. That's all you can do. That's all the grammar you have with your cameras. And somehow, with all <coughs> with all these <coughs> options you have as a filmmaker, I felt I could not get to the core of what Pina was doing. Something was missing. Whatever, however, I would imagine capturing dance or her kind of dance. It was falling short, and only when then I've. But I've told you that when I've seen the first 3D film, I realized there was a new tool and it wasn't used really yet to film real life things. But if it, once it was able to do that, it would be fantastic for dance. So I, I love technology for the simple reason that it gives us new options. And if I were to put you in a room today uh, with a digital camera and let it roll, uh, and ask you about the future of cinema, what would you what would you say? I would know that it could record for twelve hours. <laughs> 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 so I would first get myself a bottle of water. No, I, I mean, I would know how to operate it, <clears throat> but I would feel appalled. <laughs> just like many of my colleagues at the time, to be left alone. It is a strange configuration to, to make interviews with nobody there. I, it's not something I recommend. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take some questions uh, from the audience for Vim Vendors. Yes, here. The question about the soundtrack for in, until the end of the world, sort of capturing a, a great moment in uh, in in late '80s, early '90s uh, uh, music, where where bands like U2 and REM were really going through a great uh, metamorphosis and advance in their own sound. So, how much of that was that that contributed to the soundtrack, and how much of it was uh, was Vim? And then also going back to the idea of um, of uh, Summer in the City and Vim not knowing how to say cut. When when did he feel that he learned how to say cut? Well, that is a simpler question because I learned it with the next movie, with uh, Goalie. the Golic Anxiety, because I had a script. <laughs> It'd be funny to show you the script because the script was basically the novel and I had made lines with the ruler. <laughs> And that was my script. So a scene was always a line in the movie or a shot. So if that shot line was finished, I said, cut. <laughs> <laughs> it really was my script was the, the novel. And I made lots of lines. And I thought that was enough. And I mean, a lot of it is description. But even in description, you make a, you two or three lines. They belong together. They will create one shot. And then you. When it's done, you say cut. It worked. <laughs> and I still don't understand that people teach script writing to film students and tell them how to do it. I mean, and, and tell them that it's three acts and, and all this stuff that is taught, I still can't believe that any of it is true. But that's a different story. The soundtrack, we made the film. <coughs> The film that initially started in 78, the idea and the first draft of the script, we finally took then 12 years to make it because it was expensive. And in order to do it as an independent production, a $20 million 
film at the time as a totally independent film was unheard of and I still until today. So we finally got all this money together and it was 1990 and the turn of the century was 10 years away so it was a film about the near future. And, uh, and I figured that I couldn't put any music in from 1990. So when we started the shoot, I wrote a letter to all the musicians I knew, and, and I sent out, I sent out sixteen letters, and asked them, and told them I was going to make this movie. It was taking place in two thousand, and if they could imagine taking part in the adventure and writing a song with it that would project their own music ten years ahead. And I figured if I send 16 letters, half of them will come back. And then they all came back. Except one. One didn't do it. But all the other ones said, yes, we're willing to do this. And so they started slowly to each of them record a song for the film that was in their mind music that the band might be doing 10 years later. And that included U2 and R.E.M. And it was a beautiful soundtrack. and other than the Reader's Digest of the film, the soundtrack did really well. And if only half of the people who had bought the soundtrack would have watched the movie, it would have been a successful film. Um, uh, yes, in the back, over there. Yeah. A question about the, the dance scenes in Pina that are shot outdoors, um, the choice of those uh, locations. Well, locations play an important part in my movies. Places play an important part, and a lot of my movies have started first with a place and then with a story that might happen in this place. Almost all of them, actually. Until the end of the world started when I t was traveling in Australia, and, uh, and it started with the Aboriginals and their idea of dreams. And then, and if I was going to make a film all around the world, it had to end there. And the same with Wings of Desire. It started with a desire to make a film in Berlin. Or, I mean, you can go through all my films and I could tell you the story that led to it and that was inspired by place. So they're very much driven by places, by a sense of place. And I knew Wuppertal quite well. Alice in the City sort of ends in the city of Wuppertal. And of course it's a sheer coincidence, but I made this film in 1973 and that was the same year that Pina took over the Wuppertal Ballet and turned that into a Tanztheater. And I knew Wuppertal and I liked it a lot because it's a very peculiar place with a lot of history, a lot of bad luck in the 20th century and it's now, uh, uh, the whole area is in depression. <coughs> but it has beautiful places. So when I finally realized that the way to finish the film and to f continue the film was to do, was to work with the dancers and their responses to my questions about Pina. And, all, and I didn't say that yesterday, and it troubled me all night that I didn't say that their responses were not inventions, they were not improvisations, because I'm not a choreographer. Their, all their responses were 
something that was my rule of the game that Pina's look had been on and that that worked on with Pina if it had been in a piece or not because a lot of the scenes actually never ended up in a in a, in a in a piece but I asked him to answer with something that Pina's I had been on and I had this amazing collection of responses and and I and I tried to be inspired by the city of Wuppertal and bring it in and bring the place in that had so much given itself to Pina's work. Not only that the city had single-handedly carried the Tanztheater for 35 years, uh, but also Pina's inspiration had come very much from the people of that area and watching them and watching them over and over again. And Pina like, loved to watch people, just regular people, stand in in lines in the supermarket or on, on the, at the bus stop and Pina watched all the time. So it was important that the city appeared and and I tried to, f to I don't know, sort of by instinct try to find the places that would relate to these dances. So in a way that the dance, when we filmed it, you had the feeling it couldn't almost happen anywhere else. That there was a certain necessity between what the dancer wanted to show me and you and us with that response and that the play sort of supported that and actually made it look like it was written or intended for this place. And and I found amazing places that I didn't know yet. Some of the places I knew from a long time and the hanging train was <coughs> was a, a thing I remembered from my childhood. And a couple of the places are the, even the same than in the film, at least in the cities at that time. But a lot of them I found and slowly found, like this railroad tunnel or this amazing public swimming pool or, or you name it. I mean, there's amazing places and they're just all around a radius of maybe 40 kilometers around Wuppertal. And a lot of it is in industrial wasteland because all the coal and steel industry is gone and you just have the leftovers there now. So it's an amazing landscape and and I do think that it does contribute immensely to the dances. The question is about um, Vim's use of HD and Until the End of the World. This gentleman says that when he himself did a study on HD 20 years ago, he found that uh, Hollywood was very resistant to the idea. They didn't uh, believe that it was going to transform the way films were made. And did Vim encounter any of that kind of resistance? Well, I think quite often, if they didn't invent it themselves, they felt, in Hollywood, they felt threatened by, by new technologies. In a way, they have invented 3D themselves. So they didn't feel threatened by it. It's only that they invented a kind of 3D that made sense in a certain context, in a sort of blockbuster context. So it was 3D was for them strictly an attraction and a way to rake in the money. And they f probably felt threatened by the idea that 3D could actually be a new film language. They saw it as another tool to make the same kind of movies, only maybe a little bit more spectacular, and so they could 
raise the prices at the ticket box because you also have to pay pay for the glasses, and but they continued to make the same kind of movies. They they didn't realize that the language might have consequences, and I th think three D has amazing consequences when if you take it seriously. But so far, Hollywood hasn't taken it seriously. They just using it as a as a great attraction and. They're using it. They're using it with an, a lot of imagination and intelligence in animation films. I mean, amazing animation films have been made in 3D, but in live action, they, they, I think they would feel threatened by the idea that it is actually a new language and that it is a revolution. They don't like revolutions, so I think it's now up to independent filmmakers to show them that it's a fantastic tool for storytelling a different one than they have in mind so far. And even James Cameron, he's sort of pissed off the way they're using it and he's 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 afraid they're ruining the new language before it's even can even show its potential, I think. And he's right, because it has to be used with much more imagination than just as a roller coaster ride. There's a question about what works well in three D uh, from a creative standpoint and what doesn't. Well, I think everything works where the th the additional dimension is relevant. So in dance, it was so obvious. And I was very lucky that my first encounter with 3D was for dance, for another medium that really, as a condition, needs space. So... I think for storytelling and f in the future or for 3D movies, I think it is relevant that the spirit of the story in a way does need space as an element. It is more obvious in documentaries, I feel, and it's much more obvious to take people into the worlds of somebody else in 3D for documentaries than in stories, and in stories I think it's still not obvious to me at all how 3D can be used properly. And I'm still waiting, I'm, I'm sure they're making it as we speak, I'm still waiting for the film that cracks the code and shows it how a story can need 3D instead of just for effects but for the telling of it. But it's not really, I haven't really seen it. Avatar in a way, yes, but that's the big exception. And ever, ever since I'm not seeing it used with a necessity and and I'm sure there's hundreds of writers worldwide trying to figure it out right now and directors and some of the films are already in the process of being shot where they show us a different kind of 3D I'm very much looking forward to Martin Scorsese's film when it comes out and to other directors and authors who will use it and show it show us what it's meant to be, because so far we were left in the dark, with the big exception of Avatar. Question about the music uh, in Pina as it relates to the pieces that we see in the film. Well, the four pieces, we of course never touch the music and all the music is exactly as it appears on stage. But then again, the bulk of the 
film were these responses by the dancers, and there's 32 performances that are not the four pieces, but something else. And each of them had a different music. And they all danced to music, either, either music that was actually used by Pina in context with that performance, or music that they had at the time proposed to Pina when they had worked on it, but hadn't been finalized. So there was an, an incredible amount of different kinds of music. And in, in, and after all, I mean, the film is under two hours, it's now 100 minutes long, and if you have uh, 50 music cues in 100 minutes, and they're all from different parts of the world and from different un universes, it is sort of just a collection of music, and it, it, it doesn't flow. So we needed to find a way to sort of unify it a little bit. And, and as we didn't touch the pieces, and as some of the music was not really determined by Pina, I try I tried to use all these spots as a way to unify it a little bit and f and find a spirit in the music that was sort of continuing. So, like a third of the film is then composed for the film, and sometimes because the dancers would would perform it to a music that they had in mind, or that Pina had in mind for this for this particular um, solo. And some of them actually had been in pieces, so there was music attached to it. But some of the music was just out of the question for us. It was just too expensive. I mean, even to acquire all the music that is in the film now costed an incredible amount of our budget. I mean, almost a third of the budget went into music. So, so I was... And because Pina also sometimes only in the very last second decided for the music, they would rehearse a piece and work on a piece for a month and, and they would have one, how do you say that, the first performance that is public but is not yet... A preview. A preview. They would in the preview still use music that the next day in the premiere would no longer be in it and she would overnight finalize the music. So some of the, some of the dancers said they worked for months and months on a, on a performance and only the last night it was to the final music. So Pina very often waited a long time until she, she decided on the music cue. And it's not that there Choreographers from choreographies from the beginning were done to music, but a lot of them they were done without music, and only in the end the music was added. So I felt I had a certain freedom with these pieces. And Tom, who was my composer, who also, by the way, made the soundtrack for Land of Plenty, he sometimes had to work very, very hard because they had danced to a piece and very exactly to a piece. So if we substituted it then, it had to be exactly in that pacing and that rhythm. I mean, like, by the second had to fit. And we replaced about one-third in the end. 
of Vim Vendors, we have to stop there. But uh, thank you so much for spending this uh, time you. with us this morning here at the New thank York you. Film Festival. Thank you very much. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.